You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to uh, another episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today, we're really excited to have Michael Tapley uh, here with us. Uh, Michael, I'd, I'd love if you could introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into games. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, well, you got my name, uh, Michael. Uh, I have been in the game industry for Oh, let's see, about six or so years now. So I originally, I went to school for audio production and sort of realized that uh, I didn't enjoy the business side of it. And so I started thinking about other things I was passionate about because I, I wanted to, you know, be in a career that I enjoyed every day, something you do for the rest of your life typically. So yeah, I started learning about the different roles in the gaming industry, learned about game design. It was kind of like, man, I this feels like what I could do for a long time and enjoy. So I made the decision in 2012 to move to Seattle and sort of put myself in a better place to get into games because um, I had made the decision to not go to school for it. Um, I kind of wanted to do the whole foot in the door, work your way up. Yep. So yeah, um, landed my first gig as a QA tester a while back and just sort of through, you know, hard work, determination, and a little bit of luck, uh, moved into a design position and was most recently working uh, as a game designer for Big Fish Games. That's super exciting and inspiring to uh, anyone that wants to get into the game industry, for sure. So um, tell us exactly what does it mean to be a game designer? Because I think that can vary from company to company a little bit, but like what does the role of game designer actually mean to you? This is one of the hardest questions people ask me who aren't game designers or aren't in the industry because I think it's it's a really broad role. Um, you know, and you mentioned it, it can be different at, at other companies. And so, I, you know, there's sort of a rough spectrum at the highest level. So you go from like a creative designer to a systems designer. So on the creative side, it's usually, you know, you're trying to figure out the fun of something or, um, you know, solve a, a, a problem um, with a specific solution through ideation, discovery and whatnot. Whereas with systems design, it, it gets a little bit more into math. Um, you know, this is like the, you're sitting in an Excel spreadsheet for long periods <laughs> of time, you know, working with macros and stuff. Yep. But you know, depending on where you end up, like I, most of my career has been a mix of all of that. You know, I've never been in a game design position where I did one specific part of game design. Um, but usually when I tell people what I do, because they always go like, oh, you do the art. And no, I don't do the art. <laughs> oh, so you do the coding. No, I don't do the coding. Um, you know, I start off with saying I'm the ideas guy. Like I am presented with a problem um, or a gap in something. And my job is to start to figure out how to solve that problem. Um, how do you solve it for the business? How do you solve it for the players? Um, and then I, sometimes I use this like Mario reference because most people know what Super Mario is. So it's like, okay, you have Mario, you know, he can run from left to right. And your PM says, hey, we need something for players to do other than run. And so my job is to start to decide, well, 
I think Mario should be able to jump and I think he should jump gaps and I think he should jump on enemies and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that's my best way to describe it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, the uh, the PM role is the other fun one to to go into because there can be so many different <laughs> varieties of that too. Absolutely. <laughs> um, cool, and I think that was a really great example of like what sort of problem you might look at at doing from a, a game design perspective too. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, something that a lot of folks have been thinking about lately uh, is really the concept of live ops, and I think. Over the last 10 years, we've really shifted from a uh, build the game and ship it and then work on the next you know, iteration or whatnot to uh, build the game and launch it. And then everything actually happens after that as you run it as a service. Um, so, you know, what exactly does, does live ops mean to you? Yeah, this is another one where depending on where you are, that answer is going to be a little different. So if we take... Um, you know, where mo most of my experience is in mobile free-to-play, LiveOps is typically, you know, the, the core game is sort of there. It's not changing much and you're sort of keeping it exciting and fresh. The core itself, the foundation of the game is sort of unchanged. Um, you know, and usually you can run LiveOps with a, a much smaller team um, and you're really taking the time to sort of get the most with as little effort as possible. Not to say there's no effort involved, but you're, you're, it's about optimization, right? Um, whereas if you look at um, like a AAA title, so I'm a big fan of Destiny, um, you know, their version of Live Ops is very different. Um, then you start to step into the realm of games as a service, right? So the, yes, there is a core foundational piece to the game, but there is a huge amount of new content that's happening. Um, you know, events that like really alter the gameplay experience. And mm -hmm. so I think that definition of live ops is quite <laughs> different from what I've experienced in my career. Yeah. Yeah. And I know one thing that you've mentioned in the past is that, um, you know, it's really important to design with live ops in mind, uh, especially early on in the dev process. You know, what exactly does that mean? Or how could I get in the right mindset if I'm thinking of launching a new game? How do I prepare for live ops? Yeah, so in my mind, live ops is sort of a, a, a given at this point. Like it's, um, what's the term? It's almost a requirement. Like if someone were to spin up a, you know, especially something in the, the mobile space free to play to not consider live ops as something that you will be doing, um, you're, you're probably setting yourself up for some challenges. So where I really learned the importance of including live ops early in the design process is working on uh, a project called Fairway Solitaire that's like an eight or nine-year-old free-to-play game. Really old for games, you know, that's, that's mm -hmm. a long time to, to be out. <laughs> and as a result, it was built in this much older engine and had some really legacy features that made it really difficult to um, operate what we would consider in modern or consider as <laughs> modern live ops. So when I ended up on a project where it was sort of brand new, you know, we were starting from ground zero, I, I really started to look at the game loop itself and consider where does live ops fit into this? 
right? Um, Mm -hmm. How do we show all of the live ops later on in the game? So another big challenge that I see a lot of games face, even current ones, is the UI and UX side of things, right? You have the game and then you tack on this this huge other element to it, Um, but it wasn't really considered how big that piece would become. And you get this like mess of menus and you, you know, you're clicking, you know, tapping the X button to close five different pop-ups and it gets out of control. Mm. So I think, you know, considering how it feeds into your game loop and the economy as well, um, how it affects the player experience, progression, motivation, um, and then considering how do you manage all of that content and information for players when it's running you know, at full blast. Yeah, I I know, you know, as you said, uh, one side of game design is the system side, you know, getting into those spreadsheets. I know that game uh, economy is is super important there too. Um, Have you ever run into any issues where uh, a live ops event or offer negatively affected the economy? Absolutely. And it, it, you know, uh, you shut them down, you don't run them again until you (laughs) rework them. But yeah, sometimes live ops is uh, a little bit of experimentation. You know, obviously you should understand your, your players and their needs and interests, but you know, with fairway as an example, it's got a really complex economy. Um, there, there are a number of players who are in an older version of the economy. And so their dollar to, soft currency um, value is different than newer players. And so you kind of have to like consider that first of all, you know, that's the one challenge. Um, But then when you're, when you're doing live ops, um, you know, I think the biggest thing you have to consider is where are the sinks in your game? So where are the places that players can spend their resources? Because typically with live ops, what's motivating players are the rewards, right? The Mm -hmm. sources. They're excited to engage in this new event, not only because it's new, but because it's going to reward them with something. Well, if you're not offsetting that reward somewhere in that process, you end up with inflation, right? If you put Mm -hmm. in more than is leaving the economy, players have excess. So I can think of a handful of events that we put in. There was super high engagement. Um, but the sinks, and this is part of the issue of not designing live ops into the core experience, the sinks weren't good enough to offset the sources. And we ended up with, you know, really bad hangover. So players had a lot of extra resources and as a result, didn't need to buy anything for a long time. Um, which, you know, when you're looking at KPIs and numbers, looks really (laughs) bad. So, yeah, I believe that. Have you learned any like tips or tricks over the years on how to spot, you know, an offer or an event that might cause an issue like that and better, you know, prevent it? Yeah. So one thing, um, consider your most engaged players and how they are going to interact with an event and then assume it's going to be even higher than that. Um, I think oftentimes like on the system design side, you know, you're sitting, you're, you're crunching the numbers, quote unquote, um, you're, you're running these, you know, mock simulations and you go, oh, okay, well, if X number of players play, you know, five hours a day, it might push us into a little bit of a dangerous territory, but we're okay. Assume that there are players who are going to play 10 hours a day <laughs> or 12 hours a day or 15 hours a day. Um, you have to take those 
those players into account because those end up being the players that, um, you know, they, they sort of break this, uh, <laughs> you know, formula or simulation that you thought you had locked down. Yeah. Um, and then the other is, is, you know, work with as much data as you have. I think this is as much as I believe in designer intuition, like there's a reason that game design is still a, a very human, um, you know, role and, and sort of artistic. Um, I think that this is where data becomes super helpful, um, especially A-B testing, which, you know, that one's sort of an after, um, but you can obviously limit the impact, the negative potential impact on your economy if you you segment. So, hey, we're going to release this event that we've never run before to a smaller number of our players. Um, you know, so maybe only 10,000 people experience it versus, you know, 200,000. Yep. Um, and then you can sort of learn from that. Cool. That's a great tip. Um, you know, speaking of using the data to kind of drive that design, do you ever feel um, and I've definitely heard this come up before, but do you ever feel like your creativity is stifled because you're using data? Like, how do I actually be data-driven but still come up with creative solutions? Yeah, I, uh, I have a very, like, polarizing opinion on data, um, especially when it's overused. Um, I think that making games is a, a scary thing. It's a risky thing, you know, um, it, it's expensive, it's time consuming. And, you know, people are sort of betting literally a lot of money on the success of a game. And so anytime you can get closer and closer to fact or proving that something is going to work, the more appealing that feels, that seems, right? The problem is, um, making games is not a science. If it were a science, anyone could go home, figure out how to program, follow the formula and make a, you know, hit game that makes $50 million a year. But it's not that simple. Um, it's a very complicated process. So there are a couple ways that I've used data. Um, the biggest one, and, and it's usually a post process thing is validation, right? So I use my design intuition, my experience as a player, as a game designer. Um, you know, I've been playing games my entire life. And so I, you know, it's hard to talk about how something feels, especially like executives don't typically like to hear, well, I think it feels this way. Um, but you let that drive you, right? You let that steer you toward the right experience, the fun experience. And then you use data to validate, you know? Um, it's all about sort of building up this track of decision quality, right? I've been a game designer for X number of years. How many, how many really off decisions have I made versus really good decisions? And you, you build that experience yeah. up, right? Where I think data is valuable is learning more about your players and what motivates them, right? So, when, when I was really like hitting my stride as a designer on Fairway, one of the things I took the time to do was develop a persona. And so this is like an imaginary player that represents a large percentage of our demographic. Um, and I can sort of put that person's hat on. So my persona is Martha. So when I was working on Fairway Solitaire, um, my imaginary person was Martha. And I knew, I knew what motivated Martha. I knew what she enjoyed. I knew what she didn't enjoy. Um, 
and I knew how she sort of would tend to interact with the feature. And so I used a lot of data ahead of time that came from research, you know, player sessions, surveys, whatnot. Um, and then I used that as a filter. So as I designed something, I was always kind of stopping and going, how would Martha feel about this? Would she enjoy it? Is it confusing? Is it fun? You know, does it fit into the, the experience for her? Um, and so far, knock on wood, it's, it's served me very well. It's a very effective strategy. That's awesome. That's a fantastic idea. So jumping back to, you know, planning for live ops, you know, early in the dev process, you know, are you aware of any like tools or systems or things that, you know, you can use to kind of speed that along or really set your team up for success? Yeah, this is an area where I would say automation is your friend. Um, get some really smart engineers together who, um, you know, I, like I joke, um, but it's it's sort of a saying like innovation is a result of laziness sometimes, right? Um, there are a lot of innovative things I've done in my career simply because I didn't want to do the busy work anymore. Um, and it was absolutely better for the team and for the player. But, you know, I, it's live ops ideally isn't a complicated thing. Um, and the last thing you want to be doing is fighting with your your code base. Um, you know, one of the hurdles with Fairway, just as a, a small example, we couldn't run simultaneous events because we couldn't show them at the same time. So something as simple as that, right? So if we wanted to run a stacked event, um, we couldn't because we could only show players one event at a time. And so you have to consider that stuff early. Um, Consider the back end, right? So if a designer is the one who has to sit down and make an, an event or, you know, release new content or whatever it might be, what does that process look like? Um, again, when I first joined Fairway, the process just to release a few new levels took over a week um, of like solid eight hours a day work and design. And I was like, this is exhausting. It's not that fun. I want to do other things. And so I worked with some engineers and we got it down to literally anyone can make content for the game and it takes about 15 minutes. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff you want to consider. Like what is the overhead? How much work does it take to take something from concept to live in the game? Um, and then, you know, you have to consider some of the the deeper level things like what is the testability of this feature? How much of it can we iterate on? Um, what's our segmentation like? Do you really, you know, if you want to get complex and be able to release it to 10 different groups of players, you have to consider that stuff. So um, that's why I think just planning early is so important, right? You can start to get this wish list of like, man, these are all the things like, let's assume in a year the game is really killing it and we want to run all of this live content. How do we make it easy on ourselves? That's pretty amazing. So, you know, let's say I now have my game and it's live um, and I, I want to start pushing out more live ops and stuff. You know, what's been your experience in actually planning like what is today, tomorrow, this week, this month look like in terms of like which live ops events and stuff I should put out? How do you, you know, plan for that? Yeah, the, the first thing I always want to consider is what's going to be an enjoyable experience for players. You know, what, what are they going to find fun? Because 
really in, in my experience, the point of live ops has always been to add some variety and newness to the, to the experience, right? So if you're having a player go through this core loop over and over and over again, they're doing the same thing constantly, how do you give them a little bit of variety, something interesting to do? So that's the first thing. Um, another part of it is you want that, that work to sort of tie into the main motivators in the game, right? So if I go ask you to do X and you earn, I don't know, cardboard boxes as a, a reward, and then you can't do anything with those cardboard boxes, what was the point, right? There, it doesn't tie back into the core experience. So it, it's gonna be less motivating. Then from a higher level, it's sort of looking at the economy and its health, right? So uh, typically we would plan about a month at a time. Um, so we just kind of go in a week block each until we had a month filled out. Um, and we're sort of just looking at what are um, events that tend to be higher in or higher as a source, so more rewarding for players, which of our events are more of a sync. And because really what you're chasing is a very typical like foundational fundamental thing of game design, which is giving players this varying experience like a roller coaster, right? So you think of level design, you give a player a really easy level, then you give them a medium level and then a hard level, and then you give them a break with another easy level. Yeah. So similar experience, right? Um, how do you give players this fun and engaging, you know, new content um, while also making sure that it's not hurting the economy and is enjoyable? And yeah, that's that's one of those spots where initially, like, it's just intuition. If you know what fun is, if you have a sense of fun, start there. That's the best spot. That's awesome. You know, getting back to Martha, I've always been kind of fascinated with the idea of personas or, you know, incorporating your audience and community into, you know, new game content and features. You know, one thing you mentioned was obviously looking at the player data, but you also said surveys and stuff. How have you, you know, found it most effective to talk to players to get their feedback and actually use that in a meaningful way? Uh, because I, I think, you know, especially with surveys, there's kind of a stigma of, uh, well, if you ask players what they want, they're going to say, I want everything for free right now. Uh, which isn't really the case. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the toughest pieces of qualitative data is oftentimes players will say one thing and then the quantitative data will say the other. <laughs> you know, you get a bunch of people that say, oh, I hate this feature. And um, then you look at the KPIs and it's performing super well. So there's, there's not always a strong connection between the two. But I think... Um, Player voice is, is very important. You know, at the end of the day, you are making an experience for those players, um, not yourself. And I think it's important to still have, you know, your thumb on the pulse, right? I, I look at a lot of advertising nowadays and I'm just like, man, whoever put this piece of marketing together is so disconnected from the people they're targeting. Like they have no idea what, you know, my interests are, what, what motivates me. Um, so I think taking the time, you know, and you do really have to learn how to filter and sort of sift through and find what's actually valuable. Cause yeah, 
it's sort of human nature to complain first. You know, players will often write in to customer service or they'll take a survey because they have something negative to share. And it's very rare that players go out of their way to share when something is normal, right? Like <laughs> that's when things are most quiet. Like when things are just yeah. kind of good, they're not great, they're not bad. Um, they're just, they're good. Um, you won't get a lot from people. And so that that's something to look at too. You know, if, if your forums are really quiet, if CS tickets are quiet, like that's probably a good sign. You know, there's <laughs> nothing that players are upset about, but yeah, surveys are tough because, um, you know, you introduce human bias. Um, a lot of times the players that complete them are the most engaged players. And so there's, there's further bias, right? They, they don't necessarily represent the larger population that's playing the game. They might only be, you know, 2% of the actual player base. Um, but I still think it's important to, to understand and look at that information. Um, you know, I've designed a handful of features that got a lot of negative feedback, um, but it, you know, it solved the problem that, that I was set out to and I still need to do. Um, and sometimes it is that people just don't like change, even if it is mm -hmm. for the better. Um, and so sort of managing that, but yeah, I think it would, it would be such a shame to not listen to your players. Um, you know, what you act on as a result of that, I think is up to you, <laughs> but, um, you know, people have opinions and they should be heard and considered. Um, cause there have been, you know, I follow a couple games that I won't name the game, but there's a, there's a free to play game that recently launched a huge update. Um, and I still follow their subreddit and it is a mess. I mean, it, I've never seen so much like hate for a release in a game. It's crazy. Um, and you can see the frustration when people feel like they're not being heard. And so yeah. I, I think it's important to, you know, listen and let people know you are, you're there. There's humans on the other end of this process and they care about you. Yeah. I, I think I was watching a a video, it might've been Supercell, maybe somebody else, but they're talking about how important it is to listen to everything, but understand what the underlying problems are for those things and, you know, work on solving those problems. Exactly. Um, you know, when you did surveys, did you ever actually segment that data to say like, oh, this is what my first time users say versus like, this is what my most engaged users say? Yeah, it sort of always depended on the fidelity that the, the teams who were running the surveys had at the time. Mm -hmm. So again, with fairway, you know, the tough thing is it, it was a, it's a very old game. And so it yep. just doesn't have the same kind of hooks that uh, a more modern title would have. Um, but yeah, you know, we get reports back and um, you know, Hey, these are your, your VIPs or your high spending players. These are people who've only been in the game for a couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, so some of that, but probably not as much as could be helpful. Yeah. I guess on that note, you know, obviously, especially the longer a game runs, I feel like the larger your different like groups of segments get because, you know, your players that have been playing for five years are going to have very different expectations than someone that's been playing for a couple months and such. Um, how do you balance that with like a live ops perspective or even, you know, getting into players 
psychology a little bit, like even a simple like RPG hero type of game. Um, you know, you might have some people that love the aspect of the competition on the leaderboards. And then you have another group that loves just collecting all the heroes and another group that, you know, does something else. And how do you effectively deliver like an offer that's engaging to all those different segments um, at once while not just continually growing your live ops team? I mean, the short answer is you don't. (laughs) Um, I tell people, you know, there's this sort of thing in game design where oftentimes you're choosing the least worst decision. Um, there's very rarely a perfect solution. And, and this is the reason, right? Human beings are complex. Um, their interests vary. And, you know, when you get a game that's been out for a long time, you have a very wide spectrum of players. And, um, you know, like I think of Grand Theft Auto V as an example for this, right? So, if you've been playing it since it released, you're playing multiplayer, you're keeping up with all of the new content, everything seems fine, right? Like you're doing great, you're keeping up, you you got your money, you got your new cars, whatever. But as a brand new player, I get in and, you know, that sort of bar that was really low when the game first launched is now Mm -hmm. way, way up high, right? And suddenly like, oh, I need $10 million to do anything fun. you know, that, that just is sort of something that is going to naturally happen. And I think the best thing you can do if you get lucky is you can find different features that will cater to the various groups. Um, like Fairway has a club's feature. It's meant to sort of cater to the competitive players, which is interesting because it's a solitaire game, it's literally <laughs> solitaire in, in the title. Um, but we identified that there were still a number of players who wanted a sort of competitive experience. Yeah. What we did though, is we didn't make that get in the way of the players who didn't want that experience, right? It's not forced, um, you know, if you, if you opt out of the club experience, it does not change how you experience the game itself at all. Um, it doesn't slow down progression. Um, it's more of like, an added bonus for those players that are interested in it. So that's one way you can approach it is here's this thing. We know a number of players are going to really enjoy it, but it's, if there are players who don't care about it, they can continue to not care about it and it doesn't affect anything. When you run into trouble is when you say, okay, everyone has to engage in this feature now um, or, you know, X thing happens. And now you have a ton of players who are like, well, we don't want to, we don't want to do that. You know, that's not what we're interested in. Yep. So, yeah, it's a tough thing. Like I said, the, my sort of philosophy is what's the least worst decision here? Because <laughs> there won't be a perfect one. It's just never, never happens. Oh, yeah, I, I totally believe, believe that. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, analytics. You know, we've been talking about data here and stuff. Um, you know, let's say we've run one month's worth of live ops events and stuff. How do you effectively look back and figure out were these successful um, and what portion of them was successful so that I can actually maybe take some learnings forward and make them more successful in the future? Yeah, I think an important part of that is to early on, you know, whether it's, it's falls on PM or design or the two, um, 
you really have to set some goals, some expectations. You, you know, to understand if you exceeded or not, you have to know what that means. What does good look like? What does great look like? You know, what are we looking at for success or failure? Because um, in some cases, like, you know, I designed a, a live ops event that wasn't meant to move any needle, right? If you're in the industry, you hear that term a lot, we got to move the needle. Um, this one was just for fun. Like that's all we wanted. It was just so people could do something a little goofy and have some fun. So what success looks like for that event is obviously very different from one that, hey, we want to pair this event with a sale and this really big, you know, real world holiday. And, um, you know, we're going to run it specifically on the weekend. So we have higher engagement and blah, blah, blah. So its measurement of success is going to be very different. And so I think it's understanding what success is going to look like. Um, obviously, it's a little bit of guesswork, but if you're under that bar of success, it's sort of looking at, well, can we iterate? Can we improve? You know, what can we change or try? Um, if you're way above that bar, like, hey, you you might have, you know, found lightning in a bottle and <laughs> Um, try to figure out what you did. The thing that's interesting is um, even, even like this stuff as a whole, is just incredibly complicated. And I can remember months where we did all of this stuff and just like crushed it. You know, every, all the players were happy. The numbers were incredible. Like everything looked amazing. And then we're like, well, let's just do that same exact thing the next month and you don't get any of those same results, right? Like there are a lot of variables involved. Um, just to speak to one that's happening right now, COVID has had an impact on the gaming industry. You know, with people being home more, Fairway saw a boost in a lot of its KPIs because more players had more time to play. Yep. And, you know, there's, there's seasonal changes, like players tend to play less during the summer because they're out and about and enjoying, you know, the nice weather and tend to play more um, during winter time. And, and so it's like, you probably won't always be able to replicate everything, but I, you know, to sort of touch back to the important part, it's understand and agree upon what you think success looks like um, and work off of that. That's really good feedback. So basically, when you start going through that process of planning out, okay, here's what this week's going to be. And ultimately, you know, this month, as you pick each, you know, event for those weeks, you kind of at least have a metric or something that you're looking for. So like maybe this one is just all about engagement and this one's all about monetization. And maybe these ones are tied to together. And then ideally you'll have some rough estimate of, okay, well, if I run this, monetization thing, I can at least reference something in the past of this would be, you know, good, this would be great. This is going to be an utter fail if it, you know, knocks down these KPIs kind of a thing. Yep, absolutely. Because really, at the end of the day, it's like, here's my hypothesis. And then, you know, through data and other things, it, was I right or wrong? Yeah, something that I've been hearing a lot lately um, is notifications and you know what can we do with those how can we make them you know more valuable to users um, more interesting drive more engagement with them and stuff I think uh, a lot of people are saying you know retention is becoming the new thing in UA uh, especially as games get more and more complex and 
you now not only have to solve for the, uh, okay, this game is fun for new players, but you have to have to show that this game is more fun than the existing game that I'm playing and I've already invested time and money and such into, um, and it's worth it for me to start from scratch. So it just keeps getting harder. So, you know, if you can retain the players that you already have, um, you know, it's fantastic. And I've been hearing a lot of people just think about how can we better use notifications to, you know, drive both engagement and, you know, bringing players back and stuff. And just curious, have you done much with notifications? Any tips, tricks? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because when you look at the number of players that have notifications turned on, it's always way lower than you would expect. Uh, I think that there's a sort of stigma around notifications nowadays um, that really started like when free to play was ramping up. Um, you know, all these companies were, were looking for these different ways to engage players, um, get them back to the game. And so, you know, I think back to older free to play games that are just like inundating you with notifications, like every 10 minutes, there's some thing on your phone about you know, <laughs> something happened in the game, you log in and nothing's actually different. Yep. So I, I think the first challenge there is, you know, you, you need to show players the value of having notifications on in the first place, because you could write and have the most amazing notifications, but if players aren't getting them, it doesn't matter, right? Um, so that, that's the first part. And I, I don't think enough games do that. You, you get the generic like, hey, this game wants to give you notifications, yep. but then I'm sort of sitting there and I'm like, but why? What do <laughs> I need to know? What's important? Um, the game that so far in my experience as a player that had the most effective notifications was Clash Royale. And it's because a lot of their notifications were really valuable to me as a player. Um, they were reminding me of when events were starting, of when you know a chest was ready to open, which is a huge mechanic in that game. Yeah. Um, so those were those were very valuable to me, and it was it's one of the few games that I was happy to have notifications turn on for because I didn't want to miss any of this stuff. So that's the first thing, you know, that I like the typical you ask any player what they would consider a typical notification is it like, oh, my lives are back or my energy is refilled, right? And like, is that is that really valuable enough to a player to go, yeah, I want to get these, you know, along <laughs> with all the other notifications I get throughout the day. Right. So that's the first, that's the first start or step. And I think that there's some big opportunity in the industry to sort of reconsider how you communicate with the player when they're not inside of your game. Um, and how you sort of in the onboarding process teach them why it's really valuable to have notifications on. Once you've gotten past that hurdle, you know, once you can sort of ensure that players are getting what you're doing, um, I think it's going to be a little different for each game. One of the things I really loved about Fairway is um, our producer at the time wrote all of the push notifications and she really just had fun with it. You know, they were really goofy and whimsical and, you know, they used a lot of puns and so they really fit the character of the game. It wasn't just this mm -hmm. generic, you know, oh, X is happening, come here. <laughs> it was like really silly stuff. And I think that, you know, that gave it some heart and some soul and, you know, people would tell us like, oh, I laughed really hard at this notification, right? And so to them, that's the value, right? It's almost like getting a joke 
throughout yeah. the day, you know, something to laugh at. Um, I think notifications can be great and, and super effective. I just think that right now there's still a lot of like legacy holdover from when free to play started. Mm -hmm. Um, and there needs to be a shift. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know exactly what that shift is. I don't have the solution, but. Well, here, here's a fun question. Let's say Supercell hires you to work on Clash Royale tomorrow and they say, Hey, uh, we only have 20% of our users opted in to get our notifications. We feel like they're, you know, good and valuable. How can you help us, you know, up that number to say 40% of new users getting to opt in? Like what, what changes or how would you communicate that to users? Yeah. Um, give me a month and, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll pick this back up and I'll let you know. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So I think it really starts in the onboarding process. You know, when players are first starting a new game, this is really your opportunity to, actually, I think you have a post on this on LinkedIn, which I loved, which is you don't have to show players everything in the beginning, right? It's, that's not a requirement. What you need to show them is the reason they want to play and keep playing your game. And I think you can do the same thing with notifications. You can you know, hey, this is a, a feature or system or mechanic in our game where it would be really useful to you, and here's why, to get notifications around it, right? So Clash Royale, I'd imagine a lot of players, like, initially, they don't understand the importance of clearing out your chests in a timely manner. So you only have four slots. Um, mm -hmm. If you play more matches with your slots full, you're missing out on more rewards. And so, you know, like the, the concept of a min-maxing player, um, you sort of have to teach players why they would want to do that and then how to start doing it at a, a really simplistic level. Um, and I think that's where it starts is the onboarding process. Here is the thing, here is the value and why you would want to know more about it when you're not in our game. Mm. So, do you think you would show them early in the onboarding process or would you even like let them accumulate a few chests and then maybe show them a little pop-up and say, you know, grabbing your chest in a timely fashion is super important. Uh, we can send you reminders to ensure that you're, you know, maximizing the number of gold or, or whatever you're getting or something like that. And then if they click that, then you get that pop-up that they can actually opt in. Cause I know once you get that and if you hit no, it, you know, you can't serve it to them again. Yeah, that's what I would vote for. And this kind of touches on the retention aspect. Um, I think that where the industry for free-to-play especially has shifted is this sort of, um, what's the word? Like, it, the game is designed in such a way that you you sort of feel as if the the game is fearful that you will not enjoy it. And so there's this extra emphasis on showing you everything, teaching you everything. It's like here, like we've thrown away the curtain. Here's everything you will ever experience in this game because we want to make sure that you like it. And I actually think it's really off-putting. You know, I think players have matured a lot since free-to-play first started. And I think the next step is to really focus on that delight moment at the beginning through the core gameplay, right? This is the thing you're going to do most. And we want to show you why it's so much fun. 
we'll get to the other stuff. We're gonna slow down a little bit. So yes, I would choose option two. Let players experience the game, let them collect some chests, let them open a few chests and get that excitement and start to understand the value of a chest, right? Because I can't tell you how many games I've picked up um, and they show me like some sort of starter pack or you know exclusive early offer in the first couple of minutes and they're, they're selling me things that I don't even know what I use for. Mm. You know, it's got like, oh, you get a hundred gold and these three shields and a box of nuts. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what I do with any of this stuff yet. <laughs> like I've not spent any of my currency. So where's the value? And so, yeah, I think slowing down a little bit, letting players, you know, give them time to sink their hooks into the experience instead of trying to force it. Yeah. I, I feel like I've, I've talked about that too. It's like you try to monetize so early um, that to me as a player, like I just feel like that's off-putting. It's like, oh, well, this game's just like a cash for grab or it's like, oh, I already got an ad like 10 seconds into this game. Like I'm, I'm done with this. Um, so it, it's definitely interesting. Um, and, and that's a great idea with the notifications. Um, I, I think the last thing that I wanted to go over today was um, cross-genre, uh, you know, tips and tricks. So, you know, I don't know if I'm going to lean into fairway here and stuff, but, you know, what are some lessons that you've learned, you know, specifically designing for Martha um, and, and working with this kind of more casual audience that, you know, would translate to other genres that you haven't really seen implemented well or, you know, just any other ideas that you have, you know, how would you make RPG better or casino better? Like what's one feature idea? Yeah, this is where um, it, I almost start to look at live ops as a metagame, right? And this is, you know, to touch back on my early point of really considering where live ops fits into the core loop, you know, very early on is it's so important. Um, you know, a game, you you get the core experience together, you you give it to players, and then you ask them to do this thing over and over and over and over. And ideally that thing is really enjoyable, right? And so players want to keep doing it. But then at a point, like with anything, you know, boredom is gonna set in, you've sort of mastered all the elements, right? If you if you look at the fundamentals of good game design, there's you know a bit of randomness, there's opportunities to master, you know, so on and so forth. And once you've sort of hit the ceiling for all of that stuff, you know, you've maxed out your characters, you've beaten all of the, the campaign, whatever. Um, what is the thing that players then have to do that's going to be interesting? And I think the worst thing you can do is give them more of the same stuff, right? Because at that point, players are looking for a new experience. It doesn't have to be dramatically different, right? Um, again, I think the core can be there, the fundamentals of the game don't necessarily have to change. But what you want to be doing is giving players something that is fresh and has variety and maybe challenges them in a new way. So with Fairway, you know, at the end of the day, all we can really have players do or all they can have players really do is play solitaire, you know, play this variant of solitaire. But where you introduce the variety is in the sort of higher level challenge. So 
now we want you to do it in this way, or we want you to do it this many times, or, you know, there's this new stipulation. And I sort of, so I am a, I'm a core gamer at heart and roguelike games are some of my favorite of any genre. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I can always go back to say a game like The Binding of Isaac um, or this new game I picked up called Hades that just released on the Switch. The fundamentals are always the same, right? It's, it's attack, it's go through these rooms, clear out enemies, you know, fight bosses. What keeps it interesting is these small variations, these things that make it feel a little bit different every time. And now I'm excited to see how my experience will change as a result of those variances. And I think you can do that in live ops, you know, relatively easily. Um, it just takes some planning, it takes some forethought, and then it takes, you know, a, a lot of iterating and, and understanding the process. But I think any game, honestly, any game, not that I would push all games to become games as a service, because mm -hmm. sometimes it's nice that a game has a, an ending and you can put it away, you know, up on the <laughs> shelf. <laughs> But I can think of a lot of games where like, man, I wish I could still exist in this world. Like I remember the day I beat Mass Effect 2 and I was just like, oh, I would do anything to keep playing this game more and <laughs> have something new to experience. Um, so I, I think any, any game could learn from that um, and, and find a way to implement it in a way that makes sense. That's awesome. That's really great advice. Uh, Michael, are there any other thoughts or things you'd like to call out um, in the meantime? You know, I just want to leave everyone listening with a reminder that um, fun is the most important thing. You know, the remember why people play games. It's to have fun. It's to, you know, get some enjoyment. Maybe it's to escape some stresses of life. Um, if you put that first, you know, um, the games that I've spent the most money on are the games I've had the most fun playing. Always, always, always. Um, and so I would just encourage you to really sit down, understand your players and figure out, you know, if I am designing for Martha, what is she going to have the most fun doing? That's fantastic. I might have to steal that for a LinkedIn post there too. <laughs> quote you on it. Um, you know, that's, that's fantastic. Um, speaking of, um, how can folks contact you uh, after listening to this, if they have any questions or follow-up? Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I think there are some other Michael Tapleys, but um, you know, you can, you can search for me. I've got a big orange beard and uh, you'll see my experience, you know, from, from big fish down to blue mobile. Um, not sure what other forms of contact you would encourage me to share. So if you think that LinkedIn, one's LinkedIn, LinkedIn is fine. However you want people to contact you. Perfect. So that's yeah. Great. Cool. Well, Michael, this has been fantastic. Um, truly insightful. I'm really excited for folks to get to uh, listen to this and uh, pick up on some great thoughts and insights. So thank you so much for being on. It's really been a pleasure. No, thank you. And um, you know, the, the great questions are the important part. So I appreciate it as well. <laughs> awesome. All right. See you soon. Yeah. See ya.